Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Greetings. This is Paul Holdengraber, the founder and director of Onassis LA and your host on the Quarantine Tapes. One year ago, in March 2020, Ola. Onassis LA, a center for dialogue, celebrated Dublab, the wonderful independent radio station in Los Angeles. At the Ola House, I spoke with Henry Rollins that evening of March 7th, 2020, just one week before the lockdown in Los Angeles. This is what Henry Rollins had to say. When you lose art and culture in a society, you lose a society itself. And when a society becomes more coarse, when museums and galleries close, when there's less opportunity to hear any kind of music, less opportunity to dance, to paint, to express yourself, what fills that vacuum is ignorance, bigotry, and brutality. Henry Rollins set the tone unknowingly for what was to become the quarantine tapes. Deliberately refusing to succumb to that vacuum, Onassis L.A. and Dublab co-created the quarantine tapes, a daily radio program which we launched two weeks after that conversation with Henry Rollins. The Quarantine Tapes is a daily radio program in these times of grief, of devastating loss, and also of possibility, as well as a portal, perhaps. Today, to commemorate this past year, we present you with a few moments from our 175 episodes so far. There will be more, trust me. From Pico Ayer to Roseanne Cash, Patton Oswald to Joy Harjo, Myra Kelman to Werner Herzog, Elif Shafak to Simon Critchley, Romilla Tapa to Henry Rollins, to name just a few. We hope that you enjoy our act of resistance and resilience as you listen back to some of the voices featured over this past year on the quarantine tapes. Exactly. I think books are the best friends we ever have. They never let us down. They engage us in the deepest conversation. They open our horizons. They allow us to see how other people live and to feel how other people live. And um, because I didn't don't follow the news, I didn't know that fact about Camus in Italy. But it makes absolute sense. But if people are reading P.G. Woodhouse or um, Elizabeth Strauss or almost any book that offers 
companionship or solace or light. That's that's a wonderful thing. I do turn to books all the time, and I sincerely, honestly think the act of reading, the process of reading, should be continuous. You know, it's books are a companion, so it's not just um, it's something you do now and then, but they should have a constant presence in our lives. But that said, I do believe equally that our reading list should be eclectic. Mm. And and it mm. sometimes surprises me that mm. people who read non-fiction, they say, well, I read important stuff. I read history. I read politics. I read about economy. I don't have time for yeah. fiction. Or, or sometimes people who are very fond of fiction do not read non-fiction. And I find that a bit problematic because I think curiosity is endless. And curiosity knows no boundaries. Um, that's the beauty of it. So to me, it's much more interesting and intellectually if not spiritually challenging when we read across disciplines across cultures east and west fictions and non-fiction now my great terror is that the cause of the economic crisis that has resulted from the epidemiological crisis there will be an even greater uh, push to have students go in the direction of STEM because it's perceived as being more practical. Um, and um, and I think that that is going to further push the humanities uh, to the end. So this is something that I'm quite concerned about. You know, and of course, one could always say, the, <laughs> I mean, you know, I know I'm preaching to the converted here, but obviously the humanities is the only thing that's going to help us make sense of a lot of what's going on. It's actually a quite peculiar moment, philosophically, to say the least. I mean, a moment when maybe people could be thinking, or think people are thinking in, you know, much more philosophical terms about who they are, uh, what counts, what doesn't count, what they what they've been doing with their lives, uh, what is of value, all those deep questions. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how all of what we've spoken about so far connects to the quarantine and what might come out of it. Well, I would hope that when the quarantine is relaxed, people will um, remember and embrace this uh, longing for community that they may now be experiencing in isolation and apply it to um, how we go about our daily lives. Remember to apply the, and appreciate the, um, the, um, the presence of others as enhancing our own experience, even if they are unknown to us or uh, to some degree, different from us. So I understood that culture and art was the way forward at a very early age, and that's why I'm one of those really intense proponents of keeping it, because I, like I said before, I know exactly what we have to lose.
this incredible speed at which we're continually revolving on this planet and and our continual forward momentum has been stopped. And because I'm a person who believes in the power of contemplation and actually lives a large part of my life trying to find those moments of stillness because in the moment of stillness lies the capacity to imagine something new. That's exactly why I live for that state. And now we have a world that's been brought to a moment of stillness. And in that stillness, what I want to ask is where should our trajectory be when we begin again? It's good to be reminded of of advice we've given others. You know, one one thing I have felt during this pandemic period is that I don't have a lot of advice. You know, I don't know what's coming around the bend. Nobody I don't does. know. Nobody does. Yet nobody does. We're in this state of unknowing. It's right here. I'm looking around. I'm pulling open this drawer. I'm pulling this box off the shelf. I haven't opened it in years. What's inside? And invariably, you will find many astonishing uh, possibilities in that box or in that new space that you're staring at. Um, There will be surprises. You'll have kind of a better idea. You'll want to run and send something to someone. You'll have a new connection between elements, which is one thing that I really believe poetry is. It's taking elements that already exist, reconnecting them or newly connecting them. So there's been no no dearth of that. I mean, we've been we've all been probably doing it in our spaces unconsciously all this time. In your wildest dreams, the beginning of culture after this pandemic would look like what? Um, people huddling together and um, sharing warmth and sharing sharing stories, singing songs. That's what culture is all about. A collective agitation of mind. And everybody around me, that whomever I see, uh, is in a state of agitation. And uh, that's a good side effect of what we are witnessing. The most extraordinary phenomenon of what we're living now is just the level at which it reaches every part of the globe. And in my life, I've, I've never lived something that has affected everyone. Have you? No. I mean, this is what's the, the extraordinary reach of this, is that we're all in the same, well, in the same situation, of course, with different aspects and, and tremendous economic differences for people, what they're going to be dealing with. But the, there's a, at least a sense of unity. Will that last?
as a poet, you're always trying to get beyond the words, whatever language. It's 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 ironic, it, it, you know. And the great paradox of writing poetry is that you are using the craft. You are crafting words so precisely to get to meaning, but you're trying to get to the meaning beyond words. And and music does that. I mean, that's why one reason that I like playing saxophone is that I can get to the meaning beyond words. Where words are not needed. Right. You you once said we are we are losing metaphor in our languages. And I, I'm I'm curious what, what you, you meant by losing metaphor and what truly are the perhaps very deep implications of that loss. I'm not the first person to say that. I first learned that from language people. I learned, I heard it first in when I was living in Hawaii in Oahu and racing outrigger canoes. <laughs> And I would hang out some with the Hawaiian language people who were the culture bearers who were bring, you know, not bringing back. The culture is very powerful and moves about there and lives there. And uh, but so many of the young people were speaking English. So there was a move to bring back the language or, you know, to to um, to grow it or to um, what's the word? It's not growing it. It's there. But so that it would flourish and and. Because in language is, you know, the culture lives there. And that was one thing I heard was that, well, there's people who, you know, when you, that what marked our languages, I later heard this with Muscogee Creek language, with Navajo, is that, and now in English, that we speak more towards, I guess we've, it's, it's, we've diminished to texting language, <laughs> you know, right. e emails or texting language, which often does not harbor metaphor or metaphorical speak that, and metaphor, the power of metaphor is that when you look through a metaphor, that door that we were speaking of in the beginning is ajar. They have this wonderful phrase here in Japan about life being um, a joyful participation in a world of sorrows. So mortality, sickness, uncertainty, those are part of the human deal, sad to say. But that doesn't mean a diminishing of joy. It actually draws our attention more to appreciating the blessing that we do have. And for example, right now, I feel quite lucky to be um, healthy, to be in a relatively prosperous city, to be in the middle of the sunshine. You have this wonderful story, Joy, which I just loved, about bees, and that you were made to feel fearful of bees as a young girl. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking there's, there's a connection between being born remembering everything and then being instilled with fear for bees. I like that you said, after you mentioned the bees, you said being born. And I thought bees, <laughs> of course. <laughs> being born, remembering everything, and then, <laughs> then how fear. Un unintentional, but you, uh, unintentional, but in a way it's, it's, it's wonderful because what it demonstrates so clearly is the importance of listening for you. It's all about listening. I think whether you're a, a mathematician, a scientist, a social worker, a bull writer, <laughs> you know, a weather person, whatever, you know, it's all about listening. And of course, um, poetry is the, you know, along with music and singers and musicians is the penultimate, you know, listeners, you're listening, you're listening to history, you're listening to memory. I think 
you know, it's it's um, that's what poetry in any way that's what it teaches me because I think I'm the worst listener I have been. I came in kind of head headstrong and and I'm just going to keep moving. I'm a, a very much a movement person. I'm always I'm very kinetic and um, and very. There's half of me is extremely mental. I'm very mentally. I I um, I um, what's the word? I think too much. And the other half. Is is the poet, musician, mystic? When we talk about our civilization, we mustn't forget that although there were people that create, created great things in philosophy, in thought, in art, in culture, in literature, and so on, the kind of thing that civilization is described by, there were certain social situations that were anything but happy situations, uh, such as the different aspects of caste and caste discrimination. But we must also not forget that there were people who were dissenting, who were trying to change the social situation and were trying to reorient the idea of what was meant by what we today call high culture or civilization or that kind of thing. And I think in that, in many ways, we will probably come back to notions of civil disobedience being perhaps much more opposite than outright violent protest. I'm not sure. This is something that I'm still thinking about, but I think it bears thinking about for every society. Yes. It it really was like a light switch. You know, the city could be turned off like that. And what does that mean? And how do you come back from that very sudden flick of a switch? Um, what happens to us when the switch is, you know, flicked off? Mm. Um, and I found then after that, you know, I went home, I finished my piece, but I found that my language hadn't caught up with the emotions I was feeling. And I realized I need to stay turned off for a little while. I don't mean like maybe... Maybe a dimmer, dimmer switch is probably more accurate. You know, maybe it just, it, it just needed to be quiet. But I really found that I, too, like the city, needs to be quiet. And, and solidarity for me, it's just another, it's a kind of an active expression of that beloved community. So we can say the words, but how, how we demonstrate it by what we do, um, that's to me is solidarity. And the other really important piece of it, and I think it's one you talk about all the time, it's understanding that those who are most impacted by whatever the injustice or whatever the crisis is really has sort of uh, a privileged message that needs to be double listened to in in terms of determining what work needs to be done. In what way would you hope it would change? What, where does it need to change? Instinctive compassion. Instinctive compassion on one hand. I love that. I love and, that. Instinctive. And a kind of, and a, 
you know, a kind of, and, and, and I really crave for some kind of a governmental need for a solution at any cost that will reach out to people, anybody, regardless of, you know, differences in wealth. to cherish the things because we're losing so many people so quickly. I think we're forced to cherish them right. and um, the things we used to take for granted. I know this seems like a cliche, but I hope we can hold on to our sense of um, impermanence that things are even more beautiful because they're not, they're not always going to be here. I'm generally an optimist, and I, I, in my book, I say that optimism is a justice worker's imperative. In order to do this work, you have to maintain optimism that things can be better, and that there are great people capable of making them better. But so I generally walk around as an optimist. But I think in this time, I almost think of it as like when you get sick, when you have an infection, your body produces extra cells to kill the infection, your body goes into overdrive. Well, I think emotionally my spirit has gone into overdrive with optimism in the face of the horror of all of this. And so I, I wake up with extra doses of it that sometimes strike me as odd, but I'm not really going to question them too much because they're serving me well. I think we can say we can say that there are moments in each of our lives in which we are, we are living and, and finding answers to questions and years when we are asking questions. I think human life is filled with that. This moment has, has, has saddened us with a tremendous amount of questions. But it's also a moment in which we are living where questions and answers or people having a lot to say about things in a very public way is almost a ubiquitous presence because of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Everybody has something to say and everybody is, is sort of jockeying to have the great thing to say about this moment. Um, and I'm skeptical about it, um, but, 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 but not in any sort of peculiar way. I think one of the great values of, of, of life is if we live long enough, we have moments of engagement, moments of urgency, and then moments of reflection. And I, I, think, I think we must embrace them. It's not even just the movie theater experience. It's the, the movie theater experience, the um, nightclub bar experience, the concert experience, the experience of being in a room full of strangers and you are all surprised and amazed momentarily at something that you connected with that nobody thought you were going to connect with. Sometimes not even the people who are putting on the show. You know, it's the, um, you're in a, uh, you're in a bar and, and everyone's having drinks and maybe there's someone there that you wouldn't normally be friends with or wouldn't agree on. But then something else weird happens in the bar and suddenly perfect strangers kind of looking at each other going, can you fucking believe this shit? Like, those are those weird moments yeah. where everyone just kind of connects for a second and and, um, and you go home, um, maybe not necessarily hooking up with someone, but you've definitely hooked into humanity. And I think if we lose that, 
that's really, really dangerous. What kind of civics should students be learning in public schools? Well, you know, the real future of public education and even private education is something that's called community schooling. And the community schooling says, let's stop looking at low-income communities as being a problem and instead see what the assets are in that community and what assets are at schools and what assets and what needs are there in the community and what needs are there in the school. And let's have the school and the community get close together and work together so that perhaps we'll have school open 14 hours a day so that parents can come there if they don't have food. They can come and cook collectively together or they can come and hold meetings about how to force real grocery markets to come into what we call food deserts. They don't bother opening up in low-income neighborhoods. Shame on them. So there are lots of problems in the community, and we think if the school and the community get close and tied up and closer together, we've already started doing that with about 12 schools, and several others have done it just on their own. If we begin to look at that uh, community schooling model, we might end up with uh, something which uh, civics is like literally built in. And there's no way that we're going to be able to address all of the inequities of our society without going back to the roots of this country in colonization and realizing that all these issues that we're confronting with violence against African-Americans, anti-Black violence, police militarization, um, the fact that you know COVID is taking an exceptionally high toll among African-Americans, Latinos, uh, Natives, immigrants, undocumented people, all of this can be traced back to the colonized origins of our country. So for me, the new emphasis that I have to foreground much more is the idea of decolonization. What would that mean? What does that entail? How do we how do we articulate all of our mutual and individual projects about justice together around this idea that uh, colonization remains you know at the root of this country and its inequities. But I think a lot of artists are inspired by sex, of course, or love, or relationship with people. I am interested in animals. You know, whenever I say I I want to be a director, or I want to write, always people say, oh, why don't you write about, you know, your husband or your boyfriend or something? And I say, no, it doesn't interest me. It's not my muse. I want to write about animals. I feel like I'm an environmental artist. My muse is the environment, is nature, is mostly animals, also plants, but mostly animals. I like now to describe patriarchy as an octopus. The head of this creature is patriarchy, and each of the tentacles are the oppressions that we say patriarchy uses because patriarchy is a system of oppressions that privilege male dominance and so if you think of the head of that creature being patriarchy one tentacle is capitalism another tentacle is racism another tentacle is capitalism homophobia transphobia ableism these are all systems of oppression and of course one of them is misogyny or sexism so that I can keep it along with with all the isms yeah yeah and militarism 
and militarism, absolutely, all of those things fall under the purview of patriarchy. And so I want us to attack the head. Now, I, uh, octopus, octopus, an octopus is a beautiful and very intelligent creature. So my apologies to the octopus. <laughs> but I think it, well, it's, a, it's a great way. Accept it, accept it. <laughs> Thank you. I think it helps people to imagine it. And so it, it, it's an analogy that I like to use. Because depending on where you live, some of those tentacles are more powerful than others. But they work in tandem, and they all hold up patriarchy. It's, it's safer to speak. It's less safe to not speak. If you don't speak these days, people are looking at you and wondering what's wrong with you. So to me, some of these gestures, it's all been sort of turned on its head, and it makes me wonder if some of the some of what we're seeing is performative and it doesn't have a great deal of of muscle behind it but at the same time i don't want to be cynical i don't want to think in these terms because sometimes what ends up happening when you look at history is that you do have a spark sometimes there is that matchstick some for some reason a lot of the matches don't catch but one of the matches in the matchbook catches and maybe what we're seeing is the match finally catching after george floyd i've been asking this question for months to go back and say you did wrong it helps us to un it helps us to understand why someone did wrong because most slave owners owners you know uh, or bonds you know keeper of bonds people saw themselves as good people um, and I, I'm, while I don't care while someone else's self identification doesn't hurt me now today it's important that I see why they felt the way they felt before right and that's really important now as, as fascism starts to creep, not creep, but walk into the American consciousness. I think one of the things that I struggle with is I was, um, I think, angry. I was angry because this was something that was anticipated. This virus was uh, first in China back in December. Italy in January. Our first case in the U.S. Uh, was back in February. And by mid-March, all 50 states had COVID. And so we were all hearing and reading about what was quickly unfolding in Italy. And I think we could have done better. Uh, we could have prepared better. But more importantly, I think our patients deserved better. And so change is a constant that we can't escape. And part of this change is the changing of our bodies and our lives. And when we sit in contemplation of that, I really think in my experience with my patients, it gives you a new inspiration and outlook on the moments you do have, whether you're sick or not. There's this um, repetition. You know, as I look out and I see us in this moment of crisis and, you know, I, I'm witnessing this haunting, you know, ritual of black, black public grief, you know, as we have to put another one of our loved ones in the ground. And then, of course, you hear immediately questions around the person's character. And then you hear 
um, calls for law and order, then you hear, you know, it's it's the same thing. It was again Baldwin and said, again, 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 and again, and again, and again, yes. And Baldwin says sometimes America resembles, you know, an exceedingly monotonous minstrel show. The same jokes, the same dance, the same songs. We have seen the show or been the show for so long we could do it in one sleep, and we could do it in our sleep. So all of this, even as people think that we're, we're on the precipice of something new and something different, it all looks and feels so familiar to me. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com support. Thank you.